0: If you have your Bible, you can find your way to Luke chapter 7. Again, um, I just wanted to welcome you, just thank you for um, choosing to worship with us today. Um, we're, We're humbled by it, and we think it's amazing to to see God drawing people and, and doing things to make famous His name, to bring glory to His kingdom. Um, as, uh, I, we've kind of been talking through Luke the last couple of weeks, but today we're really kicking it off, kind of what we're doing for the spring. That's why you can see the, the, the Meet Jesus. And, and basically, we want to look at snapshots or pictures of Jesus throughout Luke's gospel. And then towards the end of the spring, we're going to catch some of the early sermons that He recorded in Acts for us so that we can kind of see then how we we see who Jesus is by the pictures that Luke has given us in his gospel, the way that he's chosen to give them, and then look at how the the first church started preaching about him, those first sermons, and and what that proclamation was so that we can then join with them alongside that. And so today we start this off, um, we're going to look at a centurion and Jesus, if you see the very first part of chapter 7, those first 10 verses is where we're going to be as, as far as today. So if you will follow along, I just want to read it, kind of set, it, set the stage for us and then um, we can move further from that. So in, in Luke's gospel, the 7th chapter, verse 1, it says, And after he finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who has built, our, built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them and he was not far off from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man sat under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. If you will, pray with me and ask the Spirit to, to guide us through this today. Father God, we thank you that, that you have given us your truth, you know, that we can open your words, that we can see how to, to, to live our lives, that we can see your gospel given to us. And we just thank you for preserving that truth so that we can understand it and know it. And God, today we just pray that we would handle it honestly, God, that we wouldn't change it to meet our needs, God, but we'd allow your truth to change our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so when you look at this, it's kind of an interesting story. it's It's an interesting story because it has some elements that you wouldn't expect to find, in, in, in this narrative, first century, when you have Roman soldier and Jewish elders and all all the roles are switched up and messed up. And so it, it's kind of exciting to start here because it kind of sets the stage for what we find in the gospel, what we find in that message, that, that Jesus oftentimes turned things upside down, that he flipped things on what would be a normal narrative and changed it. And so as we're working through this, I want to you, you need to ask yourself, this, this question I want you to focus on is, is that who do you turn to when things are bad? Who who do you turn to when things seemingly are out of control, when it doesn't go the way you think it should, and just life in general is just not necessarily chaotic bad, but just not the way that you would have it? Like where, who do you turn to? Because really there's, there's two answers to that question. One is you're going to turn to yourself or other people, right? You're going to, you're going to try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You're going to try to do those things. You're going to try to change the way you make decisions, you're going to change who you're around because it's other people that cause your emotions and your actions to go crazy, it's other people that bring that into your life, so you're going to change that, or your answer is Jesus, right? You either turn to yourself or other people or Jesus. That's the only two options. You either turn to people or you turn to Jesus, and so when we look at that, what I want you to do is think that, who do you turn to, and then as we look at what happens in this story, ask yourself Why? Why do you turn to those things that you do? Why do you turn to that? Because what we understand in this story, and what we're going to find out, is, is really the heart of the gospel, and that is that that story, the gospel story, is not about us. It, it's not about us, and, and sadly, there's many people that have been taught that, that, that God sent his son to die for you. He did, but that doesn't mean the story's about us. The story's about the Father. Because it was the Father that sent the Son. It was the Father whose Son lived the life we couldn't. You see, does that make sense? Like we're, not the, we're swept up and caught up in Jesus' life, but that doesn't make us the center of that story. And if we realize that, then we can get to what is happening that Luke is showing us in this story with the centurion and Jesus. But if we still think that the gospel is about us, then this story will be lost on you. Then this picture that we see of this interaction with Jesus, and there's actually no physical contact. Jesus, didn't, the story ends and he hasn't even got there. Right? There was never, they never saw face to face. And so, if you don't understand that the gospel message is not about you, really what happens in the story is going to be confusing. You're like, well, that's weird. So we have to start there. We have to understand that it's not about us. And when we do that, then we can translate the centurion and replace that with ourselves. Like how we should act. And what should happen. And so... That's, that's who we're going to focus on today. Throughout the series, we might switch back and forth. Some, we're going to focus on Jesus. Other, or other times, like today, we're going to focus on the other person, and that's today. And so, as we look at this, as we keep going, we're going to see that first, when we look at the centurion, we're going to understand that, that prayer is vital for our life. That, that prayer is vital, and that's really those first three verses. If you will, just read those first three again, kind of get us back refreshed. And after he'd finished all his sayings, remember, he's just Jesus had just finished the Sermon on the Mount after he'd finished all these things and hearing the people he entered Capernaum and so now we have it set think about that we these this is set in a certain place at a certain time we, we know where this exchange happened and then a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him and when the centurion heard about Jesus he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And so the first thing we see in there about this person, and when we look at the centurion, verse 2, we see that that he valued his servant's life. Did you catch that, verse 2? That he had a servant, a slave, someone under him that worked for him. He valued his life. That right there should mean that we're talking about someone completely different because that sets him apart from other slave masters in any time period, right? Slave masters don't value their servants, Enough to where if one is at the point of death. Matthew's account of this says that he was paralyzed and dying. But you don't see someone that, that owns slaves that cares about their life. Not in that sense. And so that sets him apart. It reveals the character of the person that we're talking about. And then we see that again in verse 3 when he says, Then the satyrian heard about Jesus. He did what? He sent the elders of the Jews. There's another part right there that, that was kind of odd. Why is a Roman soldier sending that jewish elders those don't mix right because the roman was they were the oppressors they're the ones coming in taking over and so we we see that wait a second how how is this that the jewish elders are going on his behalf because that doesn't mix they hated the romans they they hated those people and and we do too right if people are oppressing you don't you tend to not like them versus hey i'm going to go work on his behalf and so it reveals some of the character at that. And, and what I want you to see in that is that it points to the person of what's happening. Is He valued the life so much of his servant that he was going to do everything that he could to, to get him healed. To, to allow his life to be restored to him. To bring him to complete health. Not so that he could work for him, but because he valued his life. And that's what we need to understand. That this person, this centurion, this Roman soldier, this Roman officer who had authority where he was was a person that was helping those in need there's a a professor at the covenant theological seminary where I'm taking classes that that wrote a book about evangelism and Jesus and in this story he talks about how that um, it reminds him of of Oscar Schindler have you ever seen the movie Schindler's List It's, it's talking about the Oscar Schindler he was a member of the Nazi party and he protected the Jewish people working in his factory and it was helping people that couldn't help themselves and he didn't do so by hiding it was interesting he didn't do so by hiding those Jewish people everyone knew that he had Jewish people working but he was bribing the SS officers and everyone so that he could continue having them work for him and and by the end of the end of the war he was completely broke because his bribes kept getting more expensive they kept wanting more to protect that and so he was helping people at his own cost so that he could survive that they could survive and what's interesting, and it doesn't always happen this way, but to kind of finish the, the Schindler story, is that the, the Jews that he helped ended up taking care of him the rest of his life. Like, he got money back from them, because it's like returning the favor. And it's not, we're not, we don't want to look at that aspect, but sometimes that happens. But here we have a centurion doing the same thing. He was helping those that couldn't help themselves. You have a slave that's dying. And he was helping those who had need. And so at this point, when I was writing through this, I thought this myself. And you're probably thinking this, what does that have to do with prayer? Right? And you're like, you say prayer is vital. He hasn't talked about anything that he needed. But it's, it's where he goes that teaches us that prayer is vital. And that's verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus. And see, right there, that places him in the exact same predicament that we are. We haven't seen physically Jesus, but we've heard about him. He hadn't seen Jesus, but he'd heard about him. And it makes sense that he have, because the Romans, they were kind of like the authority. They were the strong, strong arm behind the local authority. So if something needed to happen, the Romans were there. They put people all over to, to make sure peace was kept. And so it would be, make sense that the Roman centurion knew what was happening. So he'd heard about Jesus, and what he did, he went to him with a specific thing, a specific request, asking him what? To heal his servant. And so that's where it becomes this idea that prayer is vital because we need to realize when things are going crazy in our life that Jesus is still the great physician. That we still can go to him just by hearing about who he is. That's why prayer is vital. That's what points to prayer is because that's how we access that. That's how we go to him as we pray to him. Why? Because he's still the physician. He still has that power. That's one of the most amazing things about this story is that Jesus heals someone and he never sees him. He's never physically there, at least until after he's healed. And so do you believe that? Do you you go to Jesus when everything's crazy because you believe that he's still the great physician, that he can still heal in your life? That's why prayer is vital, because it puts us and acknowledges us, to us, that that's where the power is. But we can't get so narrow-minded to think that we're just talking about sickness. Because Jesus can heal more than just physical ailments. He can heal our relationships. He can heal marriages when everyone says you should just quit. No, we can turn to Him. We can go to Him for help in that. And that doesn't mean that He's just our magical person that we can go to and everything's great. But He works on your heart so that you see people differently. So that you can extend grace when grace isn't extended or grace isn't deserved. Do you believe that He can still do that? Because we have a centurion, a Roman a Gentile outside of the church doesn't even have access into the place where the Jews worship and he hears about Jesus and he says send to him so he can heal my servant is that you or do you try to fix your own life do you go to him because he's still the great physician that's why prayer is vital because he can still do that he's the same yesterday, today and forever so therefore prayer is very vital because when life is that it's what's in, we can go to him. Charles Spurgeon said that we pray the best when we're falling on our faces in painful helplessness. Right? That we should pray in those times well, because he's the great position. That's where it's found. We can go to him. We can find him in those situations. But we also see in the centurion that, that how we approach Jesus is critical, and we see that, that humility then is critical. Look at the next few verses. Verse 4 through 7. It says, And then when they came to Jesus, these are the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far off, the house far off from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you okay, when we see that we realize the humility of this person first we see it in verse four when we see the elders pleading okay, the jew the, again we, we talked about saying the jews and gentile the jews and romans they didn't intermingle they, they didn't go they, this was the oppressor this was the this was the officer this was the guy that represented everyone oppressing them so how is it that then the elders go for him it has to point back to his character it has to point back to the person that he was. It has to point back to humility. Because even if he was good to them but arrogant, they wouldn't want to do anything for him, right? Even if he kind of extended some, some grace to them and, and didn't treat them as harshly as other people had, they're still not going to go for him. They had to be humble. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so when we look at this idea, there's an amazing example of the humility of this person because he had authority. He was that person. Most likely, he was the highest-ranking person there. So he had that, but as a centurion, he didn't use that for his gain, but he was humble. We see that even so much that he did what? He built a synagogue. He built a synagogue to where he couldn't even be included in worship with them, and he had to be in his own separate place because he was Gentile. He wasn't included in that. Yet, out of his... Who's to say? You know, I always hear, hear soldiers talking about when they have nothing to do, like they're cutting the grass and doing all these meaning pointless things, right? I know that's what I've heard people talking about. I, I can see that their pointless things were building a synagogue, right? His, his soldiers, nothing going on? Hey, build this. Why? Because I told you to. Right? That's what he did. Why? Because that's who I am. Because he's doing that, and it reveals a humility that he was doing something for other people that he couldn't himself enjoy completely. And only humility does that. And in verse 6, you actually see his kind of self-assessment. It says, when Jesus went to them, so they urged Jesus, come with me, come with us. He needs to heal this guy. And he does. And then verse 6, he sends people again. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. There's more to that than just a typical Gentiles weren't allowed in the Jewish. There's, There's more to that. There's more to this. Him saying that I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So he doesn't even tell him that. He sends people again. It reveals the the humility of the centurion. And we need to understand that that humility is critical in our lives as well. If we're going to put Jesus where he needs to be, if he's going to be the hero of the story and not us, we have to be humble. Humility is critical in that. And humility is something that that we see all too often dying because we're so self-centered. And so... Uh, an easy application for that is that, that as parents, we need to teach our kids humility, right? We need to teach them humility. We need to talk to them. And it's a, it's a hard line to, to talk to about because you love your kids so much. You want them to be good. But it's also hard to tell them that maybe you're not the best, that maybe there is someone better. And so you have to be humble and you have to understand what's happening in that. We have to tell them that they're not the center of their story, that Jesus is, right? That, that Jesus is the center of their life. They aren't. Because everything else they're going to get is going to tell them how special and how perfect they are. You can do whatever you want to. But that's not true, is it? We can, really can't do everything we want to. I would love to play guitar. I can't. They were, they were practicing earlier, and, and Michelle and Cody were talking about stuff, and they were like, oh, it's in this key, or tell me how many you put the capo down. And she's like, I don't, I don't understand how they're like, oh, well, that means this and this. I was lost at how many of those are. Like, I don't get it, right? I just don't, I would love to do that. But someone told me that I could, and they lied to me, right? <laughs> they told me that I could play guitar if I tried. If you just work hard enough, well, I had the, the calluses on my fingers. No music happened, <laughs> Right? So why would we tell that to our kids when we know the reality of it by personal experience is that's not true. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love them and doesn't gift them in ways. But we have to teach our kids to be humble. That sometimes you learn more from losing than you do from winning. That, That sometimes that happens. And we see this in that centurion, that he realized that it wasn't about him and he had authority. He could say that. That's what's so... Amazing, we'll get to in a second about verse 8, when he understands what authority is. He gets that, but he was humble. And even that, beyond teaching our kids, we need to teach them by how we approach God. Do we approach God humbly, as if we deserve nothing, or do we approach Him arrogantly as if He owes us something? That by our merit, by following Him, He deserves that. How do we word our prayers when our kids are watching what are we teaching them? Again, um, Jerome Bars, that professor, says that here's a man who understands the goodness and greatness of Jesus, and so he sends others to ask for him. I love that quote. I read it over and over, and it makes so much sense, right? That he understood the goodness and greatness of Jesus, and so he sent other people. He said, I'm not, I'm not, you go, because I can't go. Isn't that opposite of what we do? we think Jesus is amazing so we can just approach him with anything we can just go to him like he owes us something we have to understand that, that when we do that it's really an arrogant approach instead of humble it's not putting Jesus where he is it's making him work for us so we have to understand that humility is a gospel byproduct that if we truly understand the gospel we'll be humbled because we deserve nothing yet we gain everything and that's, that's humility. And so if, if your life isn't marked by humility, then I would argue that maybe you've never heard the gospel or understood it. We have to be different than that. We have to understand that humility is always evident in someone that's just been changed by the gospel. And that's what we see in this centurion. He had more, more authority than I can imagine, yet he was humble, enough to where he didn't even go on his own, no. No. I can't have you anywhere near me because you're so great. And that leads us to the next part because we realize then that faith is everything. We have the second part of verse 7 where we can just read the whole thing, but we start in the second. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. Again, I'm not going to come to you. This is humbleness. I can't approach you for who I am. And then what? But say the word and let my servant be healed. And then we realize here that he understands authority. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and one and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. He he realizes that he has authority, he understands how this works, but he just said, just say the word, and it will be done. And then in verse 9, we get Jesus' first part, we get Jesus' response. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found him well. The second part of verse 7, when he just says, say the word, that's that's the first part we have evidence that his faith was a true saving faith, that he understood that Jesus didn't have to be present. That he knew it wasn't the presence of the Lord that healed people, but it was the word. And if you look at Scripture, if you go back to the storyline of Scripture all the way, God's actions are in His words, not in what He actually did. He spoke creation. Here, He heals. Even when He's present, most of the time, if you look back at, at all the miracles that, that Jesus did, a lot of times it's Him speaking, not actually touching. The one that I can think of off the top of my head that's different is when He made the mud and He put on the eyes. But even the paralytic, when we look through, the, his, his friends dug through the roof, and he says, what's easier? What, get up and go, or that your sins are forgiven? He doesn't ever touch him. It's the word that creates that action. And so that's what the centurion understands, which is amazing because he's never met Jesus. He's never seen, he's heard about him, and he says, just say the word, and it will happen. That's faith. That's a saving faith. When he says, just speak, and it will happen, he understands the authority that Jesus possesses. Because he's saying, I tell my soldiers, go when they go. It just happens. So the same thing, he understands that Jesus is even a higher authority, has the power of God, because he says, just say the word and it will happen. That's an amazing faith. That's a faith that I want to be marked by. I want it to be that real in my life that I realize when I go to him in prayer, because I understand that it's vital and I humble myself before him, that he just has to say something and it happens. That's saving faith. And then we see something that we see on one other time in Scripture in verse 9. And Jesus heard these things. He marveled at him. Jesus marvels one other time that we know of. One other time. It's in Mark 6, 6, but he marvels at the unbelief of Israel. And here he's marveling at the faith of a Roman, of a Gentile, and what an amazing foreshadowing of the gospel that is. That here's someone I can't even find in Israel that has more faith. Yet he's outside of those that are chosen. It's an amazing gospel picture of what's to come because eventually all would be included, right? We go back to the promise to Abraham. He'd be the father of people from all nations. And so Jesus marvels at his faith because he understands the authority that Jesus has. And so what we need to understand and how we can apply this to our lives is just to ask ourselves, where is our faith? Where do you place your faith? Not in the idea, but the object. What is the object of your faith? Not in the strength that we have, not in the strength of Jesus, but is it in Him as it is? Because really there's two types of faith, but only one is true. one, We could say one, we have a general type of faith that just kind of the idea of jesus right we have a lot of people in our society that have a a general faith in jesus they like the idea of jesus right he's a pretty good guy he's going to help people that that can't help themselves that's a good thing we should help those that are less fortunate than us but it's an idea of jesus it's not actually who jesus is and so what happens then is those that have that type of faith they still hold on to everything that's theirs they still hold on to everything that's there. They still, they still want it for themselves. And then they will kind of attach when they need something extra. They'll call on Jesus. Like, okay, now I need your help. But everything else I've got, they hold on to everything that they have. Because they, they have faith in an idea of Jesus, not actually Jesus. Their object, their faith is what Jesus does, not the person of Jesus. But then we have saving faith, true faith, which is what the centurion demonstrates here for us. And that is someone that trusts Jesus completely. And to trust Jesus completely, you have to give everything up. You have to give everything up. Tim Keller talks about this. The pastor from New York talks about this and says that that you have to identify everything that you have and then place it at his feet. Otherwise, you have no faith in him at all. And that's exactly what this centurion's doing. He's heard about Jesus. And he says, all you have to do is say the word. I don't even need to be near you you don't even need to be near me. You can't even come near me because I'm not worthy to have you. But just say it. Just say it, and it will happen. And Jesus marveled at his faith because those who had been included in the promise. See, even the Jewish elders. I kind of see Jesus talking. He says, "I tell you." He turns to the crowd. Obviously, there's something going on. People probably would have noticed that that the Roman centurion sending for Jesus. Like, there's things happening. People, their crowds are forming. And I can see him turning even to the elders that actually pleaded on the Romans' behalf, right? The, the, the elder you can still see them being there. And Jesus turned out, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What an amazing display of faith from someone that shouldn't have had it. And what that does to me is it scares me at times. Because a lot of times we have to realize that those who have been brought up in church are sometimes the furthest from actually hearing the gospel. Because we know the answers. We know the right answer. Forever, that's how I was. I knew the right answers. You could ask me a question. I knew it. But my heart, I didn't have faith in Jesus himself. It was the idea of Jesus. It was just to be good. Or when you need something, go to him. But it wasn't himself. It was what he did for me. And thankfully, through some people... Into my lives, that my, my life, that that was that I understood that 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 eventually my faith found the c- true object, and I was able to give everything down and actually be in Christ alone. You see, that's where a lot of times the the Roman kind of had it easy, didn't he? If you think about it, he didn't have all this junk to go through. He just heard Jesus. He had faith. He didn't have to wade through all the the murkiness of religion but what we need to understand in that and what we need to take away from that is that there's only one place for true faith to be found and that's in Jesus Christ himself and so we've heard about Jesus then you've heard about him is that enough do you, do you have faith enough to just see who that person is not for what he can do for you but what he's already done because in the reality you might not be healed in this life you might not yet we have eternity of perfection because of him and that's where we put our faith that's when we look at this picture of this Roman officer in Jesus we see an amazing example of why prayer is vital because we can go to him we can go to him we have to approach him humbly to do so and when we approach him humbly the only way to know that we're humble in that is because our faith is rested in him himself not the idea of him him and we do that we realize that, that our lives are changed that people that's the difference people notice that's the difference people notice and then our lives become a living apologetic to our faith let's pray Father God, we...